Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Nobody could have fallen from grace as much as I did. I lost all my money and uh, one minute I was retail of the year. Next minute I was the butt of jokes at weddings and pantomimes. It was only when I started talking about it and using it I turned it round. Hello, this is Owen Bennett-Jones. Welcome to Make or Break, where I speak to remarkable people who reached a moment where they just had to make up their mind. With guests spanning from across the business world, we'll unpack those critical moments and explore how these CEOs and entrepreneurs managed uncertainty. This week I'm joined by Gerald Ratner, once hailed as the King of Bling. He took over his family's jewellery business in 1984 and turned it into a retail juggernaut. Over the course of six years, the eponymous Ratner's chain ate up its UK rivals H. Samuel and Ernst Jones and even broke into the US market. 130 stores turned into more than 2,500, and with success came wealth. Gerald Ratner travelled in a private jet and zipped between his upmarket properties in a chauffeur-driven Bentley. He was at the top of the business world, but that world was about to come crashing down. It was 1991, and the UK was going through a torrid time. The economic boom of the 80s had given way to a recession. House prices had slipped, and optimism gave way to fear. It was in this climate that Gerald Ratner arrived at London's Albert Hall. He'd been asked to speak at a distinguished corporate engagement, and facing a crowd of more than 6,000 people, he began. Good afternoon, Mr. President, Your Royal Highness, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, Mr. President, for asking me to address such a prestigious audience. It all seemed to be going perfectly well. Reading the reaction from the room, he never suspected that two jokes from his speech would change the course of his life forever. We even sell a pair of earrings for under a pound. Gold earrings as well. And some people say, well, that's cheaper than a prawn sandwich from Marks and Spencers. But I have to say, the sandwich will probably last longer than the earrings, but no. Gerald Ratner, welcome to Make or Break. Thank you, Owen. And I guess the obvious question is, what on earth were you thinking? But let's, let's get into more detail than that. Why don't you tell us, first of all, what was this occasion you were speaking at? It was the Institute of Directors annual event, quite a big event at the Albert Hall. I was quite honoured to be invited. Other speakers were people like Norman Lamont, who was then the Chancellor, 
President de Klerk of South Africa. In fact, President de Klerk talked about the end of apartheid, which was quite a big announcement, but it wasn't that that made the papers the next day. So you, you could hardly have had a bigger forum in a way. I mean, you've got the British Minister of Finance, you've got presidents, you've got 6,000 people. Yeah, I was quite nervous. It was a big occasion uh, for me. I was worried. I'd never spoken in front of so many people at the Albert Hall. I wasn't really doing a lot of speeches other than to my shareholders and staff and stuff like that, which I, I did quite well. But this was a step up from that, and it was a very high-profile thing. I mean, there was even royalty in the audience. You know what it's like when you, you know, the build-up to a big event in your life, and you, you, you know, you really can only focus on that and nothing else, and you're a bit petrified, and it's such a wonderful feeling when it's over and it all goes well. Not that it all went well on this occasion, but I, I was nervous. So who wrote the draft of the speech? I did. Okay, and, and was it just all about your business? Yeah, and ironically, it was about uh, how we'd achieved our success was based on selling quality products by quality staff and how we'd achieved our 50% of the UK jewellery market by disrupting the whole industry, by removing the doors on the jewellers' shops, by pricing everything and breaking the threshold barrier that existed with the posh jewellers at the time, getting rid of the velvet pads and the chandeliers and lowering the prices, which worked exceptionally well because we'd announced profits of £125 million the day before the speech. You were making £125 million a year? We'd just announced a £125 million profit and the brokers were going for £200 million in that current year. When you think that was 30 years ago, that's equivalent to a billion profit today probably. And uh, I don't think there's any retailers that are making anything like that. And we'd also cracked the American market, which was uh, very unusual for a British retailer. And just to give an impression of how impressive that was, when you'd taken over the business as a young man, what, what sort of profit were you getting then? We weren't getting any profit. The reason uh, I changed everything and took over and asked my father to step back was because we were making £34,000 loss. Because it was just the original Ratner's chain, which I took over, and it was like all the other jewellers at the time, too expensive and not really catering for the demographics, which were 16 to 24-year-olds in those days in the 80s. They had the disposable cash. They were buying fashionable goods on impulse on a Saturday afternoon, and we were not getting any of that. So um, we changed all that. But another misconception is people continually think of Ratner's as a, as a chain of discount high street shops called Ratner's. There was 2,500 shops, which Ratner's constituted under 200 of those. And I'd uh, taken over H. Samuel and Ernest Jones, watched the Switzerland and uh, built up 1,000 shops in America. So it was just the original Ratner's chain, which I took over. And that's why we went from a 34,000 loss to a £125 million profit in seven years. So you had lots to say to these businessmen and to the Chancellor and so on. And, you know, there was no reason to be nervous. You had a substantial achievement behind you. You could have gone there with your head held high and uh, just told them what you'd done. I probably went there with my head held a bit too high. There was a bit of arrogance in there, um, in hindsight. And I'd uh, prepared for the speech by actually sending a copy, a draft, to all my directors, which was something I never did before. And I regret because one of them came back and said it needs some jokes, because at the time... Uh, the first draft didn't have those two infamous jokes. How many directors did you send it to? 
About four directors, four or five, I think. And and sort of three or four of them said, fine. And one said, you need some gags. One of the directors, uh, Mr. Hussain, said it was a great speech, but it could do with a couple of gags. You know, I'm known for making gags, which I was. And I said, well, the ones that always work are the sherry decanter joke and the prawn sandwich joke. We also do this uh, nice sherry decanter. It's cut glass and it comes complete with six glasses on a silver-plated tray that your butler could uh, bring you in and serve you drinks on. And it's really only cost £4.95. pence. People say to me, how can you sell this for such a low price? I say, because it's total crap. Um, in the trade, people always ask you the same question, how can you sell it for such a low price? Because our whole thing was a bit like Ryanair, how cheap can you go? And people used to say things like, well, we cut out the middleman or we buy in bulk or, you know, we got very good buyers, stuff like that. So my joke, well, well how can you sell it for such a low price? Well, none of those, it's because it's crap. <laughs> and uh, I was not impressed with the product. It was a product that we'd inherited when we bought H. Samuel. It was one of theirs. And at the time I was critical of it. But when I said it was crap to a journalist from the Financial Times in 1987, she thought it was very funny and printed it. And everybody thought it was very funny. And in fact, Goldman Sachs offered it as their prize to their top salesman, again, as a joke. Everyone just took it as the joke it was. But it was, you know, it was well known what I thought about that product. But I got away with it. And the reason I got away with it was because in 1987, there was a boom going on. And in 1991, there was a recession going on. So that's why it didn't work so well in 1991. You know, it wasn't supposed to be that I have contempt for my customers, which is what the Daily Mirror said in the next day. So it's, it's amazing. You, you actually had it in print and no problem. So you thought you were, you were absolutely OK with that. But just tell us, first of all, about the reaction in the room. Everyone laughed in the room. There was nothing untoward. Because in context, you know, I had just said that we sell quality products and quality jewellery and highly trained staff. And um, we took more money per square foot than any other retailer in Europe, which is true at the time. But, but we've got one or two lines, you know, that uh, are not so good, but they do sell. So everyone just took it as, you know, in a speech, it's not like you're having a conversation. You have to be a bit of a showman and you have to say something a little bit controversial and outrageous. If you stand up there and just say, you, you know, what everybody expects you to say, the normal stuff, it's not much of a speech. The whole point of a speech is that you do have to shock a little bit and you have to go a bit over the top. But obviously, I went too far. Um, but having said that, the press, if you read the, uh, the press the next day, which is all over the front page of The Sun and the front page of The Mirror and page three and page five, you wouldn't have picked up anything from what actually I said because they said that, you know, I like making fun of my customers and that we sell... Um, a lot of crap and everything we sell is crap, and uh, which I sued them for, of course, and I got an apology on page 17. But, you know, there's no point in blaming the press because, and I never did, because I should never have said it in the first place. I should have been more careful. How quickly did you realise? Did you not realise there was a problem until the next morning's papers came through? Yeah, because on the... Um, I went out with a guy called Jeff Randall and his wife, my wife, for dinner that evening. He was the uh, then editor of the business section of the Sunday Times. And um, he said, there's paparazzi waiting for you outside. Um, but even then I thought, well, you know, it's a little art. It's one of those articles, you know, you get on page nine or something, uh, 
half page or in a jokey sort of way. I didn't think it would have the, uh, I didn't think it would be on the front page and I wouldn't think it was it was going to be so uh, contentious. But then, so I was a bit worried and I went to the um, Victoria Station, which you could do in those days at midnight and picked up the copy of The Times and The Sun. And the, the Times had nothing and the sun had a little column down the side of the front page, but it wasn't particularly aggressive or attacking me. And so I went to bed thinking, well, this is okay. But then my driver the next day handed me the papers to my shock. Uh, the sun had switched their front page from a poll tax story, which was the flavour of the month at the time, you remember, uh, and plastered me all over it with the most terrible quotes that I never made. And, and they'd copied the mirror story, uh, which is what papers do. They wait till midnight and see what their competitors are going with, and they copied it. And the mirror, the journalist later said that he was out to get me anyway because apparently I'd sacked his niece. I mean, I employed 25,000 people, so I never met his niece, but and I didn't know anything about it. But, yeah, it was a terrible shock to see this this press. But even then... I didn't think we'd be talking about it 30 years later. So so you're all over the front pages and you're beginning to think, oh, this really has backfired. So did you think at that time it would be disastrous or just that um, you're going to have a horrible week, basically? Yeah, I thought I'd have a horrible week. I thought that uh, it would blow over like all things do. We dropped about 5% on our sales that day. And I thought, if we're only 5% down on the day with all this, we're on front page of the sun and the mirror. Well, you lost 5% of sales in a day. That's a lot, isn't it? Not really. Being 5% down on the period last year. So it was April the 23rd, 1991, against figures of April the 23rd, 1990. We were 5% down, which was nothing. Okay. I mean, it's not good because we were running at about 20% up before that. But I still thought, well, this is the knee-jerk reaction and it would, uh, we'd soon recover. It would be forgotten about. And the next day we were about 10% down and the next day after that we were about 15% down. And then we realised we had a problem because we were hemorrhaging uh, business and, and the story was spreading like wildfire. There was no social media, but it was beginning to infiltrate the whole country and uh, didn't help that I went on Terry Wogan's show to try one of the biggest uh, programs in the UK yeah yeah and in those days you'd get about 12 million viewers what that achieved was to basically inform the 50 percent of the population that hadn't heard the story (laughs) Uh, (laughs) you made it worse I mean because people often think the answer to a PR problem is to get out there to say your story to put your messages out but it, it that didn't work either no, it didn't work. And, uh, you know, if you make a mistake, don't broadcast it, I would think. It's pretty uh, obvious. But we did a whole um, advertising campaign with celebrities. That didn't work. The press kept on. They had a picture of my house, which said this, the house that crap built. And they were just they were just people queuing up to um, have a pop-up. Ratners and I, I, the one business that was unaffected was watches Switzerland because it was all brands of watches. So that was unaffected. People would still buy a Rolex or a Longines, even though it came from Ratners Group's shop because it was it was a branded watch. They weren't buying it. Well, this actually but, spread to a business which didn't have your name on it. That's amazing. But which you owned? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I mean H Samuel, which was a business we acquired in 1986, and when I acquired it. It was a fantastic deal because it was three times our size and it was far more important than the Ratner's chain in the group. But the fact that my name was Ratner and I'd said it, 
it had its uh, effect right across the group. It took a while, but it had its effect. And to just take us to the end of that process then, how long was it before you found yourself out of a job? Well, it was the worst 18 months of my life. I uh, tried to soldier on. I was advised, and again, you know, just like I was advised to put in the joke, I was advised to hire a chairman. So there's a lesson there somewhere. And uh, I was advised by a guy called David Alliance, who was the head of uh, Coates Viello, a huge company. He said, you can have my CEO, he's retiring. I've spoken to the city and they feel that although you're still capable of running the business, you shouldn't be chairman and chief executive anymore. You should hire a chairman who can uh, help you through this crisis. And he recommended this guy, James McAdam. And um, 18 months later, I said, worst 18 months of my life, he then fired me. If you're enjoying listening to our podcast and feel inspired by some of the leaders you're hearing make tough decisions in make-or-break situations, you may want to equip yourself with the skills and capabilities to make your own difficult decisions. If so, the Open University's micro-credential, Management of Uncertainty, Leadership, Decisions and Actions is designed for you. Visit openuniversity.co.uk forward slash management to find out more. In personal terms, what did this mean? Because you had lived pretty well, right? You, you, you were making loads of money and you were living a good life. Absolutely, yeah, I, I was. Although money wasn't everything to me, I was uh, enjoying the fact that uh, after years of... Um, working under in a family business and struggling it was uh, we'd had 7 years of unprecedented growth we'd gone from a share price of about 30p to 4.20 uh, the highest growth on the stock market i yeah i was earning 850,000 a year and my shares had gone skyrocketed and i had houses in mayfair and on the river and bray and helicopters and all the bits and pieces that go with it and suddenly, I lost all of that, lost my job. Even my contract for my five-year contract, I'd waived uh, to help the company and uh, got a tax bill for about a million pounds and found myself, um, the shares had gone from £4.22p and found myself in uh, negative equity. And um, £4.20 to 2p? Yeah. Wow. So you were, you were actually in debt? I was, I was. From, 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 you know, like, yeah, we could say one of the wealthiest people in London at the time, probably, to, to, to in debt. Yeah, they used to have an advert on the underground with a picture of me saying how much a minute I earned. <laughs> I never saw it because I never went on the underground, <laughs> but I was told about it. I do now go on the underground. <laughs> but actually, that you've just encapsulated the problem here because, you know, the, the problem was, right, that there is a lot of inequality in Western societies, in the UK, and you represented it. And you had said, I'm making money out of you. You're almost laughing at them. That's how it seemed. Yeah. I mean, that was... The, and, and, you know, they wanted a villain. They wanted a full guy for this recession. And here I was that was um, a fat cat who was making fun of the customers. But nothing, if anybody, yes, my staff who know me and other people know that nothing could be further from the truth. You know, I love my customers and never, ever would rub their noses in it. You know, I come from a working class background. I didn't go to university and uh, um, I'm not this sort of snob that they um, 
the press wanted to paint me as. You know, everybody always used to comment on how I wasn't and how I was down to earth. And, you know, I worked behind the counter just like they did. And uh, I never had that attitude towards my customers or my staff. You know, my staff still to this day on social media message me about how it was the best years of their life and the most exciting. And the person that they read about, they didn't recognise. But, you know, that's nothing unusual about the press and there's no point in blaming the press about it. It's, it's interesting where you, you really don't blame the press, but, I mean, it's, it's just listening to you, it's almost like you discovered this post-truth world before, before everyone else in that, you know, it's not the reality of it. What matters is what people believe, right? And And they believed you were laughing at them and therefore... That was the operative truth. Absolutely, yeah. That That's the myth that's gone into folklore. In another of these podcasts, someone made the point that if you are a named individual, a known individual, almost a public figure, who is at the head of a business, that carries risk. Uh, precisely because you can say something wrong, you can you know, make some inappropriate joke as you did, or you can get caught out on some scandal or whatever it is. And and because so much is on your name, you know, that that's a risk. So is that a lesson that maybe you were too high profile before? Do you think that? I think that's a very good point. And in hindsight, I shouldn't have done all these interviews uh, and tried to get my mug in the magazines and papers the whole time and on the radio. I mean, what is the benefit of that, really? Well, it's good marketing, um, is it, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I used to say that it's good marketing, but my friends used to say, you know, you just like seeing your face in the paper and telling people how successful you are. Um, and, you know, they always said that uh, they're building you up to knock you down, and I thought, no, you know. But if I wasn't as high profile as I was, and I wasn't in the paper the whole time, it wouldn't have been a story, really, if it was some anonymous person who made that speech, uh, even though he might have been the, you know, high up in the company. I don't think it would have had the effect that it had. I, I don't know, but um, I, I think that a lot of the successful businessmen that I meet today are ones that pay the PR companies to keep their name out the paper rather than in the paper. Maybe I'm responsible for that sort of <laughs> approach. But uh, I think on balance, it's probably worth avoiding uh, the media. But, you know, the ones that do talk to the media a lot and you see these interviews are actually saying nothing because they're so careful not to say the wrong thing that they're saying meaningless corporate speak. You just listen to these interviews and you think, why do I bother that's five minutes of my life I won't get back. As someone who's done the interviews, <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. Uh, so did the company actually collapse or is it, does it still exist? Yeah, it's still the world's largest jewellery business, just like it was when I left it. And that, that's another thing that people say, that it went bust. The profits collapsed and the share price collapsed, but it's still going. Uh, it's just that instead of the £200 million profit that we were supposed to make, we lost £100 million that year. And uh, we had to refinance the business, but uh, but it never went bust. I never went bankrupt, which I've quoted on Twitter that I did every day, I think. It is a remarkable thing that you're willing to be so open about it, because obviously it wasn't a great moment in your life. And, and yet you've, you know, you're, you, you face it sort of head on and you discuss it. Well, when you say that I'm happy to talk about it, I wasn't for seven years afterwards. Uh -huh. I wouldn't talk about it. It was taboo. I didn't. I pretended it didn't exist. I was in denial. I, you know, it's, I, I had seven years in the wilderness after I was fired, doing nothing, just sort of um, torturing myself, wallowing in my grief. Nobody could have 
fallen from grace as much as I did. I lost all my money and, uh, you know, one minute I was retail of the year and uh, next minute I was the butt of jokes at weddings and pantomimes. In fact, I went to a pantomime with my children and uh, there was uh, Ernie Wise making jokes about me and I thought, you know, this is not much fun for a day off, but um, that was it and I hated it. After experiencing such a spectacular fall from grace, Gerald Ratner was inconsolable. For several years, he was at home watching daytime TV. By his own admission, his wife became sick of seeing him around the house. Um, consonant, please, Carol. J, another consonant, please. At some point, though, this had to change. He began spending his mornings in the gym and afternoon cycling, pastimes that inspired him to open up a health club. Initially, the man who once owned thousands of stores couldn't even get any credit. But after posting an ad in a local paper and going door to door, he signed up 850 people to direct debits for a health club that had yet to be built. The bank lent him some startup capital, and two and a half years later, he sold the health club for £3.9 million. He then did something really very unexpected. In 2003, he went back into the jewellery business, this time online. And where did Gerald Ratner decide to launch that business? Well, where else? Other than the steps of the Albert Hall. People only think about me today for that one mistake, but in fact I've made many mistakes that I'm never credited for. It was only when I started talking about it and using it as a marketing tool and speaking about it and joining in with everybody else and joking about it, I turned it round and um, it became cathartic. It stopped hurting after that. The fact that I'd announced, I'm going back in the jewellery business, I knew that I could turn this huge negative into a positive. I got a huge amount of publicity and that's highly important when the internet started because uh, not a lot of people were going onto it and buying stuff. So that was the first thing to get over, the, the, you know, to getting people to the website, which is what I achieved with all that notoriety. You know, it was on News at 10 and stuff like that, and uh, people did go to the website. And, um, and the prices initially were so cheap because to get onto Google on the first page, we were about the only jewellers that were existed in those days. So we were at the top of everything. And, you know, our marketing costs were very low compared to the paying rent and expensive shops and stuff like that. So our pri we were undercutting my old company. And yes, there was resistance because of me, but I bribed people with a low prices to, to forget about that. <laughs> and we offered such a fantastic deal in terms of, uh, we tied up with the goldsmiths group um so if they didn't like any of the product they could take it in there and change it get their money back straight away we made loads of guarantees and things to get going in the first place but we built it up to 25 million pound turnover well let's get on to what you learned from this and what you can pass on from your experience i guess lesson number one then sort of uh, yeah i can't say embrace adversity because you wouldn't have wanted this to happen but but accept adversity and 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 move on I mean, it's the 30-year anniversary last month, and I tweeted that it's 30 years since I made that speech. It seemed like yesterday. Uh, I wish it was tomorrow. I'd cancel it. And so I was the one who tweeted that joke. I was the one who, who reminded everybody that it was 30 years. If I hadn't done that, nobody would have known it was a 30-year anniversary. So that tells you something about where I stand with that speech now. I mean, rather than 
trying to put it under the carpet, I'm generally promoting it. So, you know, I've now learned uh, that some good can come of it. I've been able to deal with adversity that we all deal with a lot better than I did. I was sort of a bit of a snowflake before. If anything went wrong, I used to shout and scream. Now I expect things to go wrong and I can handle it. Um, and that is the way to go because um, you are going to have things going wrong in your life and uh, it's the way you deal with them that's important. And, and second lesson then, you did say, you know, don't take too much advice, but obviously you do need to take advice uh, when you're running a huge business like that. So uh, what would your lesson be in terms of how much you make your own decisions? Well, the problem with advice is that you often get advice from people or colleagues, and I don't want to sound paranoid about this, but you get advice that suits them. They're not advising you to help you, they're advising you to help them, um, which is, you know, human nature. So you've got to be very careful. For instance, shareholders will tell you that you should be doing this and that because shareholders haven't got the interests of the long-term business in mind. They've got the short-term interests. So they would give you advice based on short, which is not the way to run a business. So, you know, when I used to try and find out what was going on in the business, rather than talk to directors who had an underlying reason for advising me for something like that, uh, I would talk to the managers who didn't. And, and ask them what they thought, what, where we should be going, what we should be selling, uh, how we should be selling it, because they were at the sharp end. Um, they were dealing with the customers. And if I just ask you to distill it this way, what's the one piece of advice you'd give someone today entering the business world from your experience? Well, I think that uh, you see today and you read in the press about these people who've made billions within five minutes and all that sort of stuff. But that is... It's like them winning the lottery. It's very rare. The business is, is not a race. People that are very successful are the ones that have built it up slowly. And one minute they've just, you know, after 10 years or 15 years of very unglamorous running of a business and nobody notices them, they suddenly uh, wake up and they've got a really good business and everybody wants to know And uh, because they've done things the right way. And it's not a question of, being a jack of all trades and uh, investing in this, like Dragon's Den and doing this and that. It's a question of actually knowing your business uh, back to front. And the great businessmen that I've met are the ones that really, you know, like Stanley Carms of Dixon's. He always used to have product all over his desk when I went into the thing. He, you know, he wasn't looking at balance sheets. He was looking at radios and televisions and stuff and what he was selling. And the same with George Davis of Next, who started Next. You know, I phoned him um, a few months ago, see how he was, and he's in Austria looking at cloth, you know, and feeling he doesn't need it. He's a multimillionaire. But, you know, he's, he's a hands-on businessman. Uh, so get to know your product. It's all about the product. Uh, forget about all the accountants and the balance sheets and stuff like that and making a quick buck. I think if you get your product right, however unsexy it is, uh, you'll do better than your competitors. And do you uh, ever have a chat with Mr. Hussain these days? Well, he phoned me on my birthday. And uh, I know that he didn't, well, I think and I hope, <laughs> and nobody could have ever thought this was going to be my downfall. He's not. He was very, very clever, but he wasn't that. I know we look back at it and, in hindsight and think, yeah, well, it, you know, if you say something's crap, then you are going to get done. But no. I don't think he would have believed that it would have cost me my job. But who knows? But no, I get on, I get on with him very well. And uh, 
I don't bear him any grudge. Um, although, you know, somebody did say to me the other day, do I regret saying what I said? Because I seem to have a good lifestyle now. And I do regret saying what I said. Obviously, I do. I said that's the most stupid question anybody's ever asked me. <laughs> Thanks very much for telling us about your truly terrible business decision. <laughs> Pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by Radio Wolfgang for Audi, presented by me, Owen Bennett-Jones, and it featured Gerald Ratner. It was produced by John Joe Devlin and Cass Denton, edited by Eli Block, and the executive producer was Ellie DiMartino, with support from the Open University. <laughs>